This hearing will come to order. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, one year ago today, Lion Air Flight 610 crashed into the sea shortly after takeoff from Jakarta, Indonesia. All 189 people on board perished. Five months later, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 departed Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Just like Lion Air Flight 610, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 experienced problems shortly after takeoff and crashed. I wanted to start this episode in a wood-paneled committee room on Capitol Hill, where Roger Wicker, the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, was taking evidence in October 2019 to find out why two Boeing 737 MAX aircraft had crashed. Both of these accidents were entirely preventable. We cannot fathom the pain experienced by the families of those 346 human beings who were lost. The room was packed with mothers, fathers, children of those who died, sitting holding poster-sized photographs of their loved ones. The face of a happy, smiling child stands out among them. Many family members are here today and we appreciate their attendance. I appreciate many of them meeting with members of the committee over time. Among the family members who were there was the father of 24-year-old Samia Stumo. She was travelling on the Ethiopian Airlines plane to Kenya for her first assignment with Thinkwell, a non-profit organisation working to disrupt the status quo in global health and development. My name is Michael Stumo and I'm Samia Stumo's dad. My wife, Nadia, woke me up early in the morning on March 10th to say that a plane crash had happened in Ethiopia. I did not believe Samia could be on that plane, but she was on the plane. I could not breathe. My son tore, paced, and sobbed. The Boeing 737 MAX 8 drove itself and fully buried itself in the ground at hundreds of miles per hour, disintegrating into small pieces under the earth. We flew there to bring her home, but we learned there were no survivors. Then we learned we could not bring home her body, or even fragments of her body. I stood on that Ethiopian agricultural field with my family, looking at the crater, feeling her. This should not happen to anyone again. That's why we're here. And then Samia's mother, Nadia, addressed the committee. There is a huge hole in our family and among her friends. We struggle to build up our connections, as she did so effortlessly and with grace and fun. We are one of 337 families with such huge holes because this aircraft didn't function. Samia and her fellow passengers shouldn't have died. Those in charge of creating and selling this plane did not treat Samia as they would their own daughters. We as passengers need to demand that planes be safe so that no one else dies. Profits 
should not come before safety. And we are making this effort here to help prevent a third crash. But what does that mean? How do you prevent the third and the fourth and every future crash? The Stumo family are pursuing their own route. They are suing Boeing. They've also been involved in a campaign to keep the Boeing Max grounded. But what's the big picture in this? What does preventing catastrophe in the air look like? This is the Catastrophe Podcast. I'm Jill Koenig, a consultant working in high-hazard industries to develop the leadership and culture needed to prevent the worst from happening. In 2017, I watched horrified as fire destroyed the tower block opposite mine. 72 people lost their lives as London's Grenfell Tower burned. I felt helpless, grief-stricken, desperately sad. Because these disasters don't just happen, we create them. That's why I wanted to make this podcast and write the book that accompanies it. To apply what I know about safety and change. To speak to other experts and frontline workers to expose how our established ways of thinking and working cause catastrophes, and ultimately to show how we can all prevent them if we change our approach. And with me on this journey, and you'll know why if you've listened already to episode one, our episode on fire, is Matthew Price a journalist who I first met when he was with the BBC. He's now at Sky News. You know what I was thinking about what Samia's mother Nadia was saying there and, you know, what a desperately sad story and a sad picture that Nadia and Samia's father painted and incredibly courageous people for standing up and, and, and speaking so publicly about their grief and what they're going through. Um, but the words keep coming out, don't they? Let's work on how to prevent another crash. And for completely understandable reasons, this is what we hear in these hearings, whether they're about the Boeing crashes or about other disasters. It's what's always said. Here's a little bit more from that same hearing from Roger Wicker. As chairman of this committee, I promise their loved ones that we are working to obtain a full answer as to how to prevent future tragedies. These families deserve answers, accountability, and action, and the public deserves no less. Yes, and again, you know, what does that mean? How do we do that? How do we prevent catastrophic events? When the then chief executive of Boeing, Dennis Mullenberg, gave evidence in front of Congress on the Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, he had some thoughts. Please know that uh, we carry the memories of these accidents with us and uh, the loved ones, the memories of them, they will never be forgotten. And their memories will drive us every day to make our airplanes safer and to make this industry safer. And we are committed to doing that. I am grateful to have the opportunity to be here today uh, to say this to the families uh, personally and I want to let you all know that we are dedicated to learning. We are learning. We still have more to learn. Uh, we have work to do to restore the public's trust. And we will do everything possible to prevent accidents like this from ever happening again. 
So what happened in the months and the years after is that the entire fleet of the Boeing 737 MAX was grounded for 20 months after the crashes. And now the company says it's added multiple new safeguards to the aircraft. Regulators have told Boeing to revise its checklist for dealing with emergencies. And then in November 2020, the US regulator, the FAA, cleared the Boeing 737 MAX for return to service. But, you know, in my work with high hazard industries, I always want to look deeper. What are the structural things that created a deadly event? So that's what we'll examine in this episode. First, I want to look at Boeing itself. Then, with one of my favorite people, who also happens to be an astronaut, we'll examine the wider picture. But first, it's David Learmont, who knows everything about planes and flying. He's a consulting editor at Flight Global. He joined Flight International in 1979 and was air transport editor and features editor for 15 years before taking up his present role. And he has flown the simulator at Boeing of their 737 MAX aircraft. His analysis of the whole affair focuses on Boeing's use of what's called the MCAS system. Don't worry if you've not heard of it. Even the pilots who flew the new plane hadn't at that time, which, as David explained, was precisely the problem. The Indonesian crash was quite a shock because the aeroplane was not only the latest version of a Boeing, it was a very new aeroplane. It was less than a year old when it happened. So you're looking at that and you're looking at a a very modern aircraft and things don't generally go wrong with modern aeroplanes. It's really rather like if you're as old as I am, um, you know, going back to the 70s and remembering what cars used to be like and remembering that you took a toolkit with you so that when it broke down, you might be able to do something with it. Well, cars aren't like that any longer. And and Nora aeroplanes, modern aeroplanes like the Boeing 737 MAX, things don't go wrong with them. So if something happens on the flight deck, if something happens technically, that's incredibly unusual. What do you mean? I mean, uh, from my perspective, someone who is not an expert like you, planes do fall out of the sky. Yeah, but you see, if you're not an expert, then... You just see a plane is either flying safely or it's fallen out of the sky. What happened was that although the aeroplane could have been saved with what we know now by the pilots, the pilots were so flawed by what was happening, they didn't know why it was happening. Just at one point in the flight, very, very early, not long after takeoff, the nose of the aircraft started forcing itself down and they pulled it up again and then it forced it down again and then they pulled it up again and they said, what the hell's going on here? An aeroplane is not supposed to do this. Eventually, the system got the better of them and it dove the aeroplane into the sea. And when you pieced together that story, you and others, what what were you thinking? We were thinking, what has gone wrong with the system? Um, What we didn't know about, and neither did the pilots, was that Boeing had put in a completely new system. It wasn't intended to do what we've just been talking about. It was intended to put in a few little tweaks during certain phases of flight, simply to make the Boeing 737 MAX feel, when you're flying it, like the previous Boeing 737s, so that pilots didn't get a surprise about having this one acting in a slightly different way. And then when they put this thing in, they didn't tell the pilots about it. 
because they didn't think the pilots really needed to know. It wasn't in the uh, the flight manual. I mean, this is this is appalling stuff. It's absolutely unbelievable, especially for a a world class company like Boeing. We'd never seen anything like it. There was a kind of intellectual arrogance here. You've got a, a whole load of excellent, incredibly practiced seven three seven pilots as a a big. U.S. airline like Southwest, they don't fly anything else except Boeing 737s. They've been flying 737s ever since they started. They know all about them. And the pilots on that airline, when they found out that Boeing had put in this this system for correcting its flying characteristics, and they hadn't told even Southwest pilots about it, they just couldn't believe it. Um, and, and it is. It is still to this day. It's unbelievable. If I'm if I'm accurate, um, the after the first crash, there was a focus on pilot error. It, certainly in the narrative. Yes, you, you're absolutely right, Jill. Boeing is an American airplane. It's an American airplane made for Americans. The whole culture, according to which Boeing's are made, is an American culture, and and yet it's got to be flown by people who have completely different cultures. I, I never saw this as a purely pilot error thing. Well, what was Boeing's approach as a company to building this new plane that was going to secure their their business and economic future for the next few decades? The, the, the 737 has been the most popular jet airliner in history. The point is, it's sold countless copies. And really, there wasn't a generic problem with the type. Boeing had a problem because Airbus was doing so well with its A320 series, which is the direct competitor. And it was thinking of bringing out an entirely new airplane. And then it it thought long and hard about that. Trouble is, it thought a bit too long about it. And then it said, hey, Airbus is running away from us. We've really got to do something now. So they said, we'll just have one more iteration of the 737. So they did that. They put some slightly larger engines on it. Uh, more modern, more efficient engines. And it was because of the sighting of those engines and the aerodynamic changes that mounting them on the wing made to the aircraft itself that they had to fit, well, had to, that they fitted MCAS. MCAS was simply designed to make the MAX fly like the next generation 737, the previous series. My understanding is if they'd done a completely new aircraft, then the pilots that flew the 737 series wouldn't have been able to fly the new plane. Yeah, you're right. So it would have cost more and would have made them not competitive um, with with the Airbus. Exactly. That, Jill, is only one of the considerations. I mean, the point is to produce a brand new aeroplane with new thinking from ground up, it takes a long time. And they were pondering the subject for too long and then they'd lost their window of opportunity. Uh, but, but you're right. By doing another iteration of the 737 and making it fly very much like the others, they not only didn't have to invest all this money for the future, this massive um, research and development exercise, but they also could have um, Boeing pilots already trained. They wouldn't need any additional training. All they'd be given was a, a downloadable um, app on, the, uh, on their tablet, and they could learn about the changes. 
And why did they want that? What did that say about the, the culture and the thinking at Boeing? Airlines determine what the manufacturers ultimately do. And they don't want to spend money any more than they have to. And, and training is a big issue. They'd much rather have pilotless airplanes because they don't have to pay the pilots and they don't have to train the pilots then. Commercial air transport now is a very, very competitive game. You want to be able to tell people, buy our airplane because it's not only good value to buy, it's not only a great airplane, but you don't even have to train the pilots you've already got specially to fly this one. Um, you see, uh, Matthew, every, every pilot doesn't just have a pilot license. They have a pilot license and then they have, they have to have the pilot license stamped with aircraft types that they are qualified to fly. And they have to have done what's called a conversion course. You have to do a, at least a couple of days in a simulator and usually more than that. Uh, and you have to learn an awful lot. Now, what Boeing was trying to do within the 737 series was to cut out this um, four days of special training. Away from the technicalities, what do you think Boeing got wrong when it came to this new plane? I don't think they got anything wrong, um, except for MCAS. I went over to Boeing, and they let me fly the 737 MAX simulator. And uh, I asked them to let me fly it with the MCAS on and with the MCAS off. And in the flight regime where the MCAS is supposed to cut in, most of the time it doesn't do anything. And I, it, it really didn't, the difference didn't matter. The MCAS is not essential for safe flight in the MAX. Now, that is my belief. It's not essential for safe flight in the MAX. It's all about this business of making two Boeings more like each other, okay? They didn't need it. This device killed the people who died. It needn't have done, but... It could be so easily corrupted, and Boeing should have known that it could be easily corrupted, and a corruption by being fed incorrect information was what caused the MCAS to do something it wasn't designed to do. And why did the company not pick up on that? And again, I guess away from the technicalities, was this, was this something in the culture of Boeing it was something in the culture of Boeing, yes. Um, I don't think that, the, that something had always been in the culture of Boeing, but it, had, it was in the culture of Boeing at the time. All you have to do um, is, to, is to have a look at some of the internal discussions that were going on between Boeing technicians, and you knew that they knew they had a problem. So what was it in the culture then? Arrogance. Um, basically, they were, I mean, Boeing is a very, very good manufacturer of aeroplanes. I mean, it's fantastic. But they just thought they were infallible. Suddenly, they were thinking, well, they were acting as if they thought they were infallible. There's this um, concept, um, which, David, I'm sure you've come across, called chronic unease. Yeah. So, uh, you know, imagining what the worst case scenario will be. And if you lose that, you put yourself at risk organizationally. Do you know, I, I, I mean, I've, I've had discussions with, with people about this and, uh, you know, you could overplay a little theory that I have or something that, but it, it, it plays into what you just said, Jill, about chronic unease. Uh, Boeing is an engineering company. Engineers should never be outside 
further away from the factory, then the, the smell of oil goes. If you can smell oil, you're an engineer and you act like an engineer, you think like an engineer. Boeing's HQ used to be in the place where most of its aeroplanes are made, and, and that's Seattle. Um, that's where its HQ used to be, but a, about a decade ago, they moved to Chicago. And at the time, I was thinking, why? They won't be able to smell the oil. I still don't know why they went there. I don't know why. Uh, now, I, I think that was, I don't know whether that was a symptom or whether it was a driver of the cause, but engineers who can't smell the oil any longer are not going to, they're going to lose chronic unease, which is what they should have. So building on that, you end up with the executives sitting in their ivory tower and losing sight of the real issues. And out of all that detail from David, what stands out to you? Probably the issue of chronic unease. Do you know, um, when you stop searching for vulnerabilities, when you start thinking nothing can go wrong, you're in trouble. And that's really why I wanted to speak more generally about flight about what can go wrong when you're up in the air, and even when you're up but not surrounded by air. There's a NASA astronaut I've worked with a lot. So Jim Weatherby is a retired United States Navy officer and aviator, test pilot, aerospace engineer, and retired NASA astronaut, and is the only American to have commanded five spaceflight missions. I also wanted to get the thoughts of a commercial pilot with a huge amount of experience. So we also were delighted when Captain Laura Einsteller, who has flown for over 30 years, joined us from her home on the US West Coast. And you know, every time we've spoken over the last few years since we've met, you've always mentioned Jim. When, when did you first work with him? So I've known about Jim for ages because of his illustrious career, but he has also worked in the aftermath of four of the world's biggest catastrophes, namely the two space shuttle disasters, the Challenger and the Columbia. And then he also worked with BP after Texas City and Macondo. So when I first really worked with Jim was in the aftermath of Grenfell, when I needed help in figuring out how you make a difference in the face of catastrophes. But more than all of this is Jim's personal experience and what he has learned over the years. So that's where we're going to start, with a story he often tells about landing his plane and what it taught him about the importance of listening to yourself and therefore the people on the front line of the job. I was coming down the chute at night landing on a ship at sea, couldn't see very much, and the ship was pitching around, and it was particularly scary. You could hear the voices of the other pilots going up. And I was thinking I was born to do this. It's the best job in the world. I love doing this. I'm really good at this. And I started letting my mind wander. And I was thinking about my brother back in New York. He had a lousy job. He was a golf pro. And I'm doing the thing I was born to do. And just about the time I crossed the ramp to a hard landing, fortunately, nothing was damaged other than my psyche. I realized I had done this to myself. I didn't have the proper mental discipline to stay focused on the task at hand. And I sat there on the dark flight deck and I couldn't unstrap for about 10 minutes. And I vowed to develop over however long it took over the many years to develop the mental discipline to stay focused on the task. Be here now is what we call it. Have the situational awareness to be able to sense what's going on with the system and not let outside distractions 
cause me to, to deviate in my mental discipline. It takes a long time to develop that. By the time you launch on a rocket on the launch pad, you are so in the moment, it's a very powerful feeling. You're, you suddenly have the brain power to sense everything, to see everything, to feel everything, to hear everything, to read all the thousands of gauges and dials, uh, listen to the voices of the crew members and make the right decisions in the moment. So we call that be here now. There's other techniques that are equally important, but that's one of the more important ones. Laura, does that resonate with you? Absolutely, because if, if you're not engaged in the moment at the time, especially when you have a, an emergency situation, and in a lot of cases, you know, we have maybe new hires, we've just hired, they're new on the line, they just came out of training, they're still, as, as we always say, they're hanging on to the tail. <laughs> and so as the captain, you're in a mentorship position as well, so you're multitasking at its best from a making sure that the passengers have everything that they need and they feel secure and safe, that the jet is operating optimally and that you are in command of everything with that and all that that entails, plus the dynamic nature of our environment that we fly, as well as trying to mentor and uh, be in those moments. Because for one split second, if you are landing on an aircraft carrier, you're coming in and it's wind shear and you know, you're having the other pilot land so that they can build experience. It just takes a second of lapse of concentration. So we have to always be on par with all of our skills and experience because you never know at any moment when you're going to need those 30 years of everything you've accumulated. I, so I had a boss, I used to call it the sunshine report. So I had a boss who did not appreciate the sunshine reports. He wanted to hear the bad news. And when he did hear bad news from me, he perked up and gave me the good body language indications that he was really interested and he really valued the potentially bad news. Even if I didn't have a solution, he was interested because at least I had identified a vulnerability in the system. But when I told him things were going well, he, was, he would kind of nod off and wouldn't be really that interested in it. One, one of the things Jim touched on, Laura, was... Um if a pilot senses that something doesn't quite feel right, that that should be listened to. I don't know if you had moments where you felt this doesn't feel right, but were you listened to? Are pilots listened to? Does the system actually take into account the thoughts of engineers and pilots and cabin crew and whoever needs to be listened to in order for safety to be really paramount? I think that in any industry, there needs to be a reporting system set up in place so that the workers of the company, and we were talking about transportation and aviation uh, and aerospace in this case, that when these frontline workers can make reports that go to a department within the company or within the company, but also to the regulatory agency saying, hey, we're seeing this out on the line. We're experiencing this, these situations. You know, I've seen it not just once now, I've seen it a few times. Here's our concerns. It's very critical, as we've just discussed, that everyone listens to that because everyone wants the companies to succeed and do well and keep everyone safe. That's our goal every minute of every day. Jill, what are you thinking? Because that's, that's pretty much the heart of everything you've, you talk about. 
it's the test tacit knowledge of the front line is do you know if if you take it back to a grainful context where your front line is your residence is people have an as lived experience that is critical to safety and i think often um i mean particularly in housing because it's not viewed as high hazard is people don't realize how important tacit knowledge is. I know Jim um, Jim and I have had many conversations since Greenfall, and I think one of the things is how do you get people who don't operate in high-hazard industries to think in the way that you have to when you do? And and key to that for me is is this notion of you know the tacit knowledge, the voice of the front line, and how critical it is to safety. And you just see over and over again. I mean, major accident after major accident, the failed opportunities to listen. Right, and I almost think that the key word for when you're at the the top of a situation and you're running things, and you you are to some degree disengaged from the front lines. Keyword is liability sometimes that, you know, they, this is what we're seeing. These are our concerns. And this is actually from a liability aspect, what it could cost from a big picture perspective. And sometimes that can be all it takes to get the attention to make some of the changes. And like you had said, Jill, in one of your uh, statements too, I was surprised to see that, that only maybe less than half of the time those recommendations that are made after accidents are actually followed through or, or less than half where it's the changes aren't made or the changes are made, but without the outcome that was expected as per the recommendations. So that was fascinating, I thought, and, and concerning. Yeah, I mean, in, in the UK, in the UK in public inquiries, there's actually no system for um, ensuring that recommendations are either implemented or effective. Uh, but I, I think it would be useful because Jim has also been involved in both the Challenger and Columbia disasters, plus some others in, in the oil and gas industry, because we've been speaking a lot about before something goes wrong. So I don't know, Jim, from from your perspective, what are the most important things when something goes wrong? Well, before something goes wrong, as we've been speaking about, we, we need to really listen to the voices. I think many of the senior managers use the excuse that there are too many people with too many complaints and there are too many issues to deal with and so they stop listening. And, and my point is we really have to at least acknowledge and pay attention to what people are saying, uh, even pay attention to our own intuition with experience. Our intuition will tell us things that we don't always listen to, but we should listen. Now, I'm not saying you have to act on everything, but you certainly must listen and think about what people are saying and have some pretty good rationale for why you're going to choose to not implement a fix that they're talking about. But also you need to be understanding that if I just ignore it, they may be stifled the next time and they won't raise a concern that might be valid the next time. So even if you're not going to take action on something that somebody's recommended, you should always go back to them and say, thank you very much for the input. Here's why we've decided not to implement the change. Here's how we're going to mitigate the risk. 
and, and, the, and the consequences, but please keep giving me your concerns in the future. Otherwise, we're going to miss something in the future and then have a big accident. And, and people are going to say, well, you should have been listening. <laughs> There's this thing that's called the watermelon effect, which is the outside of the watermelon is green and executives and senior leaders tend to want green dashboards. But what that's hiding is a whole lot of red underneath. So there's this wonderful statement is, you know, challenge the green and welcome the red. And I think for executives, that would be a, a, a very important step that they could take towards goodness. Yeah, there's a similarity in the launch business, in the space business, uh, we call it launch fever, where people are are predisposed to accepting the go recommendation, and they often challenge the no-go recommendation, and it should be the reverse. We should challenge the go recommendation and make sure we're really ready to go, uh, because the go recommendations are the ones that result in accidents. You never see a no-go recommendation resulting in an accident. And if you're in the business of preventing accidents, you really have to be sure when it's time to launch. I think that's a wonderful conversation. What's it like to go up there? So, uh, you know, there are so many great things that I could mention. Let me just focus on two quick ones if I can. The first was... Uh, it was before we even launched. I was sitting on the launch pad for my first command, so my second flight, and we had time to think because I didn't think we were going to launch. The weather was bad that day. And uh, so I had time to think. And, and the first thought that came to my mind that actually gave me a lot of confidence was the hundreds of thousands of people around the country that were pouring their hearts and souls into the space program, at, as you alluded to earlier, they knew their connector was going to work and they had installed it properly. And I had met many of those people and it, and it gives, gives an astronaut huge confidence to know such great people are doing work, not for a paycheck, they're doing it for something greater in importance than themselves of launching humans into space. So that was the first thing. Uh, but you know, I could talk for hours about the, the beautiful sights that you can see uh, especially the nighttime side of the atmosphere of the Earth, which glows a green color. Most people don't know that, but the nighttime atmosphere glows in space. It's really amazing. And to see the number of stars with the unaided eye that are so clear and so bright, they don't twinkle, that just thousands, tens of hundreds of thousands of stars you can see with the unaided eye, uh, it just blows your mind. But um, I also want to close by saying you don't need to go to space to realize the beauty of the universe. I can, I can look at the majestic scene right outside my window and, and think, wow, this is a beautiful place. And I look at a tree and I think, oh, you're telling me the water goes up the trunk, out the branch and combines <laughs> with chlorophyll, with life-sustaining energy. This place is really amazing. So you don't need to go to space to do that. But I do feel very fortunate that I was able to go. Is there anything else anybody feels like you want to say just before we close? Well, just the, come, what comes to mind is we could talk for hours on technical everything <laughs> because we, we love that. And uh, it's thank you for giving us the opportunity to, to discuss risk factors and uh, you know policies and things that we need to really be aware of as we, we go forward. Um, I, I would like to say probably that 
a recent event that showed or highlighted that we shouldn't be trying to keep pushing toward automating everything. That's, that's not the solution. And I think that that tends to be the default for some companies or some thinking that, well, we need to take the human factor, the human elements out of things. And it's, it's really the opposite, as, as um, Commander Weatherby had discussed, that you, we have to still have the human factor in place to manage all these situations that are so dynamic that you can't possibly program into systems. So you have to keep also training the people that are operating the systems to manually be able to handle all of the tasks uh, in hand as automation fails sometimes. It's, uh, it's really important, especially the recent 777 that happened with the uh, engine blowout. If we didn't have well, highly experienced, you know, knowledgeable pilots in place, that could have been a completely different outcome. So all the automation is off in that case. And you're having to assess all of the different variables and situations in this case and make the correct decision that brings the successful, safe outcome. So that's really important. I like what Laura said, and it also translates not only from the cockpit or operators who are faced with technical decisions that they must make, use humans where humans are good, which is judgment, intuition, experience, relationships, communication, values, the ability to make a decision under extremis. You know, a computer has no fear of death, but the human will often make the right decision when it really matters. Um, But it also translates to the boardroom. So our executives need to really be good technically but they really, truly better master the social side of the socio-technical organization and understand when the corporate test pilot says, hey, it doesn't quite feel right, or the resident in Grenfell Tower says, hey, something isn't right. They have to have the experience and, the, and the, frankly, the confidence to say, yeah, that means something. Let's do something about it. So I want to say what I want to say one thing where I'm kind of sitting here going, should I say it or shouldn't I say it? But I will say it. So um, this is so moving for me um, to be in this conversation. (laughs) And there's something I mean, so Jim has mentored me since Grenfell is kind of just helping me navigate. How do you, I don't know, try and make a difference after something catastrophic and there's something that I'm just very present to in this conversation is people really want to help. Do you know, there's this amazing community of people, some of whom, many of whom, unfortunately, have gone through some pretty horrific experiences. But th- there is just this collective desire for us to learn and get better. And I'm just very present to that in this conversation and very appreciative. Laura, it's great to meet you and Jim. You know how much I appreciate you. Well, thanks for all your work. That's a lovely note to end it on. You know, there are several moments in the recording of this podcast where your innate emotion comes through, and it did there. Why was that conversation so special to you? 
I think um, th there's something about being at this point of recording the podcast. So I think there's something about that. But there's so much negative stuff after a catastrophe. There's so much pain and there's so much grief. And then there's these amazing communities of people that just want to learn. And, you know, in the making of this podcast, every single person we've asked has just said, yes, I want to participate. And that's just moving to me. And, you know, Matthew, it just feels right in this context to loop back to where we started, to listen in a different way, perhaps, to the then Boeing chief executive, Dennis Muhlenberg, in Congress, talking about the two crashes. Mr. Chairman, I started at Boeing more than 30 years ago as a summer intern in Seattle. I was a junior at Iowa State University studying engineering and I'd grown up on a farm in Iowa. My parents taught me the value of hard work and integrity. I was awestruck to work at the company that brought the jet age to the world and helped land a person on the moon. Today, I'm still inspired by what Boeing does and by the remarkable men and women who are committed to continuing its legacy. But these heartbreaking accidents and the memories of the 346 lives lost are now part of that legacy. It's our solemn duty to learn from them, and we will. Recently, there's been much criticism of Boeing and our culture. We understand and deserve this scrutiny. But I know the people of Boeing. There are more than 150,000 of the hardest working, most dedicated, honest people you will ever meet. And their commitment to safety, quality, and integrity is unparalleled, and it is resolute. We will stay true to those values because our, we know our work demands it. It demands the utmost excellence. So thank you for this opportunity to convey to the world that we're committed to changing and to making sure that accidents like these never happen again. So should we put culture down as one of the key points when trying to prevent catastrophe? Short answer, yes. Behaviour occurs inside of a context and leaders create the context inside of which people perform their work. And culture is absolutely crucial to preventing catastrophes. So in our next episode, we're going to be exploring this link between leadership and safety culture within companies. When we look at the story of the cruise ship that capsized off an Italian island. Catastrophe was hosted by Matthew Price and me, Jill Koenig author of Catastrophe and Systemic Change. It's a Mother Come Quickly production and sponsored by my company, JMJ Associates. If you enjoyed it, do feel free to share with friends and colleagues. And of course, if you'd like to write a review, I'd love to see your thoughts.